Welcome at the Coalface. I am Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world, beyond the headlines, and look for lessons learned that can inspire us. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and also consider visiting at buzzsprout.com and click on the support button and a shout out to our five current supporters. Thank you for helping covering our costs. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Peter Stanbury. Peter has developed a unique expertise over decades of guiding companies, international agencies, governments, and civil society organizations on the politics of economic development in emerging markets. He's helped these organizations design economic activities that take account of local dynamics, such as what happens to social structures when income level change, how do communities respond, and what spillover effects happen. Peter's work is about effecting change in the real world based on understanding how it really is rather than how we wish it to be. His perspective is invaluable in navigating the ethical dilemmas of operating in places with weak governance where dogma and rules rarely work as a compass. Hi, Peter. I'm absolutely delighted to use the excuse of a podcast to have a longer conversation with you, long, long overdue. I was um, recalling when we met and the circumstances behind that, and I think it was an event some years ago in London. And I remember we we kind of clicked uh, around similar worldviews on, um, I think it was the, the importance of understanding stakeholder dynamics in fragile environments. I think at the time I was working in Iraq and I was uh, sharing how I thought like understanding the informal nature of governance and power dynamics was key and reflecting on how um, poorly equipped corporate leaders are to understand how to operate with a lens that they uh, usually is legalistic, focusing on compliance uh, visible written rules, but blind to how things work uh, below the surface. So I think we kind of hit it off around those themes. And then I realized that you had like decades of experience there. So really glad to have that conversation with you today, Peter. Well, Philippe, uh, lovely to talk. And as you say, it's, uh, it's we're long overdue for proper catch up. And yes, I think that is where we hit it off, because I think some of the people in the room were talking about things in quite structured um structured ways around evidence that was as it were the obvious stuff and we would say yes but what about this what about that you know what about these dynamics what about that interest group uh you know looking at more layers and more levels of what was going on than perhaps other people in the room uh, and i think we fired off each other quite well in that in that meeting i seem to remember yeah yeah and, and i, I realized that um so you have a background in anthropology and you've also worked for the corporate sector in really complicated places with trying to shape how um, a better understanding of political economy can help deliver better outcomes in interventions, whether they're commercial enterprises or, or, or um, projects to, to do good. Um, and uh, now that I'm saying this, actually, uh, part of my, my fascination for your uh, work is actually 
I've toyed with the idea of studying anthropology and there's a part of me probably that wishes that I had had um, your life in, in many ways. <laughs> I'm not, sure, not quite sure you necessarily wish that given the stuff I've been doing, but, uh, but, it's, but it's one of those things. It's, it's almost coming to things like anthropology um, or political science or economics Rather than having studied it start, uh, starting as an academic discipline, it's having seen some of these things in the field and then working back to say, well, how do you then access some of what's written, um, be that books of theory, be that analyses done by other people that you can then fill the gaps with? Uh, I mean, I've worked for donors, I've worked for corporates, I've worked for NGOs. And really, yes, my 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 key role is to say is is to try and understand how do you actually get things done in this place you know where, wherever this place is uh, and it's and it's not usually by believing whatever you get told or reading the the press headlines it's about digging down into the difficult weeds uh, and and i think that's really come from having spent an awful lot of my career in some really quite iffy situations i think it's your your linkedin uh, tagline that says like getting things done in difficult places or, or something but i was actually really curious and i don't think you've ever shared that with me is if i if i ask you to travel back in time and and share some of your early life or childhood experiences i'm really curious how that influenced a little bit the direction you took so do you mind sharing like for example what were you talking about at the yeah. at the dinner table oh. Well, it's funny because you put this question in the in the rubric to begin with. And, and actually, if you go right back to my early life, um, not really anything from that really <laughs> fitted me at all for what I've done since. <laughs> I mean, I came from a very ordinary family, very loving and very lovely family in, in sort of suburban England. Um, and, you know, the discussion around the dinner table would have been about, you know, whatever our homework was for that week or, you know, who we might have been, you know, which friends we might have been seeing at the weekend. So and probably abroad might have thought well we might go to France for holiday that would have been about it <laughs> I mean the real I think the real transformation there were two things really I mean the the obvious one was going up to university and realizing that there was a much bigger world out there um, and we can talk about that a bit more than France like. and France exactly well France to be fair if if the rest of the world is is France then that's fine by me but I think it was my early career is what really got me some experiences that were transformational and they were slightly accidental in a funny sort of way but it was I went from a situation where I sort of studied history and studied international relations and then suddenly I was in a situation where I was part of it I left university in 87 and at that stage everyone either went into the city or went into advertising uh, I went into the city that's just what you did city or advertising advertising didn't want me so I joined the city uh, great because I know how to read a balance sheet but got chucked out the last time the City of London came to an end. So by various means ended up, wrote speeches for members of Parliament and ended up working for NATO. And so this is 1991. I went to the Soviet Union, as it then was, to work with some of the newly emergent democratic groups, one, partic one in particular called Forum 90, and, you know, to try and help them, you know, grow, to help them develop. And, and then the coup happened. So I was, I found myself in Soviet Central Asia with a coup on. Um, so suddenly having, having spent years at school and university studying the, the Cold War and the rise of the Soviet Union, here I was actually in the Soviet Union as it collapsed. You know, at the end of that week, I was, I was in a country with a visa for a country that no longer existed. I had a Soviet visa, <laughs> of course, the Soviet Union had come to an end. And so actually realising that 
you know, being part of transformations like that um, and actually having to cope with the reality on the ground. You know, so it was not just a, an academic or intellectual exercise. It was a practical process of how do I get out of this situation? How do I understand what's going on? Do you mind sharing where were you and, and uh, what were like what were the circumstances? Which city? Like what what, what did you feel at that time? <laughs> what, what what did you see even? Well, this is this is this is a story that's probably best done properly over a few beers. But um, we, we've <laughs> right. we've we've flown in on a Thursday and we then flown down on the Sunday night to Central Asia. Say we're in um, the capital of what's now the Kyrgyz Republic. And our driver on the Monday morning, we had a very full schedule. Um, the dri our driver was late. And, you know, we said, well, what's the problem? He said, oh, there's been a coup in Moscow. And ha, ha, ha. Yes, of course there has been. But all the way through the day, people started to talk about tanks and, you know, coups. And so later that night, when we got back to the hotel, we were sufficiently spooked. My colleague and I were sufficiently spooked to put a call through to the British Embassy in Moscow. Now, bear in mind, this is way before mobile phones. And you had to book phone calls. So the, the call came through at you know three in the morning. And we said, we understand that there's stuff going on in Moscow and obviously not a secure line. So the, the, the disc officer said, yes, there has been a coup in Moscow. Mr. Gorbachev has been overthrown. Cue not very mild panic. So what, what are we supposed to do? And again, he said, we recommend all British citizens leave the country as soon as possible. Now, bear in mind, we were right down in Central Asia. I think our nearest international airport was Delhi. But that was over several <laughs> mountain ranges. So to cut a long story short, we eventually made it back to, to Moscow because we had connections in Moscow. The difficulty was because we were working with the reform groups, we were wanted by the KGB. So we went into hiding for three or four days um, and rather bizarrely spent two days watching back-to-back -back episodes of Yes, Prime Minister, which for those of you <laughs> who might be listening to this podcast later on don't know, it's a, a 1980s satire of, of British public life. And then later in the week, we saw the, we saw Yeltsin on the tank and we saw the statue of Dzerzhinsky being pulled down outside the Lubyanka and eventually flew home a few days later. And so, of course, there was the stress and tension of, of managing the day to day. But there's also, I guess, at some point, the realization, as you said, that, ah, this is history. This is how history yes. happens. Yes. Uh, and, and this is how it feels. Uh, it doesn't come in digested form. It just happens in front of you. Yeah, exactly. We're all used to seeing, say, footage of the October Revolution in, in, in Moscow and St. Petersburg in 1917. Uh, we're all used to seeing, uh, you know, another example, Chamberlain coming back from his meeting with Hitler in 38 and waving his note. And we're all used to seeing those old newsreels of history happening. But it's when you're actually in the middle of it and you realise, no, this is an historic event. At the time, you don't think of it as being like that because one is in a situation where one has to just cope and get through it. But absolutely, history happens to real people at real times. Uh, and it only becomes history afterwards. But it was actually realizing that there's not much point in a simply an academic understanding of how these places work. You have to understand the messy reality, even if that is unpleasant and scary sometimes. You need to get to that detail of that granularity of how do we how do we actually get in this case, how do we get out? You know, there's a real possibility we had the coup not failed, that, you know, I could even now be sitting in a prison camp somewhere in Siberia. So it's the realization you've got to make a situation work, no matter how unpleasant it might be. And how did that moment influence what you did next? You sort of, end, I suppose I ended up not becoming addicted to it, but you end up being, getting further involved in that process. So, you know, probably for the next three or four years I spent 
a lot of time in the former Soviet Union and Central Eastern Europe. Um, I ran something for NATO called the Democracy Programme, which was trying to establish democratic structures within the former communist bloc. Uh, and obviously you'd had the communist structures that had been in place. So the question was, how did you re- how did you establish democratic structures? So, you know, did you have a monocameral or a bicameral parliament? Um, how did national government relate to local government? How does the private sector relate to government? Uh, all of those, how does a political party run? All of those things, which I guess in our societies we take for granted, in those societies, they hadn't had it for 50 years. And so our role was to try and share lessons between people in that region um, so they could actually get themselves back up and running. Um, but, you know, it led to some sort of slightly odd situations. I was in the presidential palace in Bulgaria. and The president turned to me and said, so, Peter, how do we set up a bicameral parliament? But then you have to take a step back and say, well, OK, well, what happened here before? What is there that you've got in the past within this country that you could build on? So you start to actually reduce it to a set of practical questions rather than trying to make something up. You realise that actually, Central Europe particularly, they, that they had structures that they could, go, which had been in place until the mid part of this last century, that they could go back to, um, or at least use as a basis for, for moving forward. Um, but it was it, it led to some quite strange conversations indeed. You know, but then there were also some you know massive times of hope. Um, I was an, ele- an, an election observer for the first post Ceausescu elections in uh, Romania, and you know I think there were something like 147 political parties for hmm. the election because there was this great hope that we can do it differently. And fine, you had to say, well, you know, a political party needs an electoral manifesto and it needs a cogent position. So how do we develop that? But then also there were some times when it's incredibly depressing. I was also an, an, an election observer to the 94 presidentials in in Ukraine. And I was stationed out in Cherkasy, which is perhaps the most depressing place on earth. It's flat and grey. I've actually been <laughs> to Cherkasy. Really? Yeah, well, you, you yes. know, it's... With the statue of Lenin and all that. It's yeah. one of the greyest places on yeah, earth. Yeah, I think sure. grey is definitely the word that comes to mind about Cherkasy. Um, but we were there, we were the election observers, and we were getting people coming and asking us, who should we vote for? Because, of course, historically, they'd been told by their farm boss, their factory boss, you vote for this person. And they didn't have anyone to tell them. And they were scared they'd get it wrong and they'd be criticised or they'd be sent away. And we said, no, you, we can't tell you. We're the election, election observers. And it, so that was really quite depressing because it made you realise that, you know, the difference of the reality of how democracy may or may not work in different parts of the world. That's really fascinating because you, you, you came in with like best practice around structures to, to help a democratic process take shape. But you realize that you have to work with what's there in terms of practices, cultures, habits, networks. Is that also the time where you started realizing how power actually happens? Like you mentioned Bulgaria, mm. which of course became kind of controlled by what was it like? people from gyms and boxers and other yeah. gangsters i guess they, they were already pretty active under the the communist system and th- those ended up being pretty pretty influential is that where you started developing a bit your 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 perspective on how those power dynamics work and how, how you have to kind of use local ingredients if you like when you when you want to shape it yes i think that's i think that's about it i think it's the realization that it doesn't matter what you might like to be the situation or how you might want a situation to be. The fact is the reality is the reality. And and you have to deal with that. You have to proceed from where you are, where the people are 
in the place that you're working, irrespective of whether that's pleasant, nice, um, acceptable um, to, you know, uh, civilized civilized society. Um, you have to make do with the bits that are there and you can't. And I think what has constantly frustrated me ever since then is that far too many interventions, be that by development institutions or be that by corporates, are developed by clever people with PhDs in, you know, Rotterdam or London or Geneva or New York or Washington. And they take very little account of what actually is the situation on the ground. You pick up on the um, the sort of the mafia or the organised crime uh, type issue. I mean, that's another situation where I found myself, another example of finding myself in a situation which was, I suppose what one might describe as suboptimal. I, in the sort of back half of the 90s, early part of the, the first decade of this century, I was political advisor to Diageo in the Southern Balkans. The drinks company. The drinks yeah. company, yeah. Um, and this is also where I got into the whole question of, of, of the role of the corporate sector in, in fragile states. But I found that one of their main business partners ran the Albanian mafia in the southern Balkans and the KLA the Kosovo Liberation Army had paid for the for their weapons using Johnny Walker whiskey <laughs> so the the reality of the situation was that the control and the structure and how the place worked was massively influenced by effectively a mafia structure but things worked um, so for example getting us around the place getting to airports it, it provided a a structure and a degree of stability, which probably the state institutions were unable to do. I think the other thing that's quite interesting is is it's very easy to criticise, in inverted commas, mafias, because we see them as being illegitimate. But what was interesting about this particular individual was that he'd obviously made his money initially through probably quite unpleasant means, but he was gradually trying to legitimise, you know, by working with Diageo, by working with other big international brands, he was gradually shifting his business into something more legitimate. And we think that sounds strange, but if you look at the big American institutions we now look up to, you know, Mellon, Carnegie, you know, Vanderbilt's, they all did exactly the same in the late 19th century in the US. So again, it's, it's, it's realising that the structures in these places are not, A, they're not always pretty, and B, they're certainly not always the ones that have got titles like president or member of parliament or you know, state governor. That those, may, those individuals with those official titles may or may not be important. But unless you understand the deeper wiring diagram, you're never going to get anywhere in these places. Yeah. And I think you say so many important things there, like this question of figuring out, like, how are public goods actually delivered uh, beyond who delivers them? Uh, and so in the in the case of the, uh, Albania there, clearly there was a, an element of public good delivery by um, non-state actors or, or an actor that was playing the role of the state. I think you also mentioned, I like your example of confusion in Cherkasi around how to vote, because you also bring in an anthropological lens. So I guess also with uh, concepts or frameworks like constructivism around, like how do people conceptualize democracy what does it mean to them so yeah. when you are a somebody who has to vote in a factory and democracy means um voting for who you told to vote uh, how does your notion of democracy evolve there's also like after the soviet union broke down quite a lot of 
what became Russians experienced democracy as essentially essentially a a free for all capture of wealth lack of order um inequality and, and it 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 became a a a term and a, and, a, and a notion that was had deeply negative connotations so Definitely. i i find i'm just curious how your because you also talked about how technocrats bring in kind of try to make interventions that are ill-conceived because they don't re- really appreciate the um, anthropological dimensions in those places. I was curious if you could comment on yeah. on, on that how, how that lens helped you. In the yeah, way. well, let's 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 start off with the Russia situation and take it sideways to a couple of other places. Uh, it, yes, an awful lot of people. You know, if I was I was going around bits of rural Russia during the early part, the early and mid nineties, you got an awful lot of people would say, "We've got democracy, but we get, we haven't got any food." You know, what use is democracy when we can't eat? So. We, by which I mean, I suppose, Western liberals regard democracy as being, well, to quote, to quote Churchill, the least worst form of government. But democracy proceeds, if it works, it has to proceed from the idea that an individual will take a choice based on the idea that you pretty much could, could in theory, at least vote for any party that's, that's, that's out there. That you might, you know, say in the in, in the UK, you might have the Conservatives, the Lib Dems, or the Labour Party. That in theory, you could you could vote for any of those, and, and depending on what their proposition is in any given election. But you go to a lot of places that simply doesn't work. I was in an example of where it doesn't work. I was in in Beirut a few years ago at the time of a of a, of a parliamentary election. Uh, Lebanon is broken down into I think it's fourteen confessions. Uh, so religious groups, and and that came from the peace settlement after the eighty two civil war. But what it means is that, and again, I forget exactly who gets what, but the um, the president is always one religion, the parliamentary speaker is always another religion, and so on. But my my interpreter said, I you know saw the the election hoardings up. And I said, well, what do they say? And it more or less said, well, your Druze vote for me. Your Sunni vote for me. So there's no one will ever say they're Druze. They will never vote for the Sunni. So democracy merely stacks up people behind who they are ethnically. So in situations like that, democracy, as we would understand it, simply can't work. You look at the same thing in somewhere like Bosnia. Um, again, actually an analogous situation. You had a um, you know the Dayton Accords that that brought peace to Bosnia in you know the in the nineties, uh, but all it did really was set the war into aspic, and meant that the political the the warring factions became political parties, and you haven't got any ability to cross those divides, and so d- democracy in those situations as we would want it to work, I don't think can work. Then you layer on top of that how. Uh, multinationals are trying to operate responsibly uh, in a landscape that they probably struggle to navigate at all. So, in, in the Diageo example, like what, what what happened? Well, I was very lucky that the guy who was my immediate, you know, my client, as it were, who was the the regional director, was fabulous. He was half Greek, um, half Albanian, I think. So he absolutely got it. You know, he he absolutely understood what was going on, and he he and I were able to between us to navigate the situation quite well. Some of the people in the corporate, and actually, I think this is probably illustrative of a wider challenge within the within the corporate sector. Others in the main business got it and could see actually, fine, this is not 
ideal, but we realise we have to work with what we've got. And others were just, no, we can't be doing this. This is just uh, haram. We, we simply can't be going there. And you get that with, um, I mean, I've worked a lot with, with your sector, with the oil and gas sector. You know, generally speaking, the people on the ground get it because they're actually facing into some of these challenges on a day to day basis. They know what it feels like. Often people at the very top get it because perhaps they've done the same thing in the past. You've often got this sort of kind of impermeable grey layer in the middle that whose job is just to shift paper from one side of the desk to the other during their working week. It's the scourge of the spreadsheets, the impact of lawyers, all of those sorts of things, which <laughs> makes makes it very difficult for 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 multinationals to address or to even be able to ex- understand that this is the way the world is structured and that that's what you have to deal with. I think that's where the challenge lies. There's even a language that's missing, actually, to talk about this. Well, you see, what happens there, the challenges... I mean, funny enough, I'm just about to start a piece of work with the WTO on public-private partnerships, and I have done a, did a piece of work a few years ago on something similar for the IFC. And the challenge is that corporates and, and government use the same language but they mean different things by it. Hmm. So, for example, by public-private partnership, what governments will often mean is they want a, a forum for discussion, to have an airing of views, to find a common position, whereas corporates have got a problem and they want a solution to it. But yes, you end up with sort of homo corporatalis, you know, these people that, that they can't see anything that doesn't fit into a spreadsheet. <laughs> you, you also did a lot of work really deeply embedded in, in communities, like trying to figure out how community dynamics function and when you bring in either development intervention or an economic opportunity how that disrupts that 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 fabric and how to how to do it correctly so i'd I'd love if you could share a little bit how you got into that um figuring out the political economy of communities and um some of some of the learnings maybe some of the the failures also that you've you've seen in that in that space well, the example of that I'll give, which I think is, 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 is the best, is some work I was doing a few years ago in Bangladesh, right up in the north, in the Chores communities, which is right up on the Indian border, incredibly remote, some of the poorest populations in that area of the world. And there'd been a sort of market systems program, which had been run by the, um, the Swiss government. And the people running that intervention and had done very well in terms of, you know, increasing productivity for farmers, um, increasing, you know, trade at local markets. But the guys that were running the program were saying, well, there's been some shifts in the sort of social dynamics. Now, at that point, I mean, your comment was I've worked a lot at community level. And yes, that's true. But I think the other thing one has to realise in working at local level is that there's a limit to what I, as a white Westerner, can do in those communities, you know, with certain, in this case, you know, right up in, in you know, Saipur and, and north of there, you know, me coming in as a white Westerner, that's great for, you know, members of parliament, heads of local authorities, for whom someone coming from abroad, it, it gives them sort of face, as it were, that, that someone's bothered to come and see them. But if I try to interview smallholder farmers on Shaw's communities, I just get absolutely nowhere. So you then have to, I then had to make sure I had a really good network of local researchers who could actually make sure that we were getting good data from, from communities. And what we saw was really interesting. You were beginning to see some quite significant shifts in the way in which that, those communities were working. So for example, instead of, one of the things we saw is instead of all of the farmers going to the local market to sell their wares, what they were tending to do is to choose one of their number who would then go and sell on behalf of all of them. 
But because mm. therefore he had he was taking a larger amount of product, he was able to go to the slightly mar- larger market, slightly further inland, where better prices were available. So what then happened, because that person was then away for a, a, a longer period of time, his land was then being looked after by his peer group. So you're beginning to see some sh- subtle shifts away from purely smallholder farming towards something a bit more pluralistic. Also, because you had a bit more wealth at local level, you were beginning to see other businesses get established. So there was a, a little tea kiosk. So people could go and, you know, during the day, they could go and have a cup of tea and a, a chat with their with their peer group. You had, um, because there was more money available for schooling, you had a, a school got established there in, in one of the communities. So you were starting to see some quite significant shift in the way that that society was structured um, based on, on economic growth. And, and also there was a sense that these individuals were more confident of themselves. But again, historically, um, those farmers would have been seen as the lowest of the low. And so if they went to their you know, agriculture dealer, they'd more or less get the, the worst stuff. And I talked, or we talked to some of those agriculture dealers who said, actually, now these farmers are coming and they know stuff. So actually, we have to actually have a proper conversation, which means we can't just get rid of the, the lousy stuff on them. So there were some real power dynamics changing as well. You know, again, there's money available for the communities, which historically the the high ups, the political authorities had spent as kind of largesse. And the communities were now coming to them saying, right, we want this, this and this. And I remember them pointing out, you know, one piece of of, of an island where, they said, right, if you build a retaining wall here, even when we get the floods, that will protect that island. So it's really quite interesting to understand, you know, really get into the, the nitty gritty of those community dynamics and understand how one could work with those uh, and how, therefore, whether it was local resources or international resources coming in, you could work with that local dynamic, that local structure to play it much more positively. So, for example, what that led to is it, we effectively said to the Swiss, well, there's no point in doing educational or health programs because by doing this um, market systems, by developing you know, economic development programs, you're creating the wealth. It means those p- communities are doing it for themselves. So it, it led to some quite significant questions about how did you structure you know, aid spending in these places? Because such aid spending tends to be very program specific, yeah, right? So like somebody, somebody comes in like, I want to do education. I don't yeah. care what goes on locally that's my mandate yeah that's right exactly it's it's the classic you know the classic development structure is a five-year 50 million dollar project and it often isn't and as i said before it, it is often not predicated on a proper understanding of what's there already so sometimes you can actually be in a situation where it makes things an awful lot worse i mean a classic example i mean i'm not privy to what's gone on since but when i was working in um karabakh when I was doing my doctorate, so sort of 15 years ago, um, when the NK war had first come to an end, the, there was a massive great refugee camp um, and the UN had gone in there and, and done food aid. But rather than shift to cash payments, which would have encouraged farmers to start growing stuff, would have encouraged a proper market economy, they're still doing food aid. So you've still effectively got communities who've not moved forward for 20 years. Um, and so often failure to understand realities on the ground mean that external interventions make things worse rather than the better along these lines like one area i'm interested in is in is in the space of of nature-based projects that generate carbon uh, offsets or credits and one of the discussion is how do you make such uh, projects sustainable like if you um identify for example 
an, an area that you want to protect from deforestation. And you work with local farmers, local communities to make sure that they protect that land. How do you ensure that the benefits accrue to the whole um, uh, contiguous community as opposed to go to the uh, village leader uh, who gets a one-off payment and then may, may, may use the money to buy a few land cruisers, for example. So there's quite a bit of thinking about how technology can also enable better economic interventions, for example, by having the proceeds of every time, every year, uh, carbon uh, credits get sold, that automatically a share uh, of the proceeds is paid to the uh, e-wallet of every member of the community. So I'd be, I'd be curious, because you, you've dealt a lot with how to find representatives of a community to then direct uh, interventions. Just curious if you have a few thoughts on, on, on this. <laughs> um, <laughs> rather a big topic. I mean, I think your basic analysis is correct. Carbon credits is not my particular area of expertise. But a lot of what I've seen is not good. I think there's an awful lot of snake oil out there. And from the people I've spoken to who were genuinely trying to make it work. I mean, I met, I was at a conference a few weeks ago, um, talking to, you know, two big companies who were doing an insetting project in, in Indonesia. And they were raising exactly the same thing. And these are two companies who were really wanting to make it work and, and asking exactly the question that you were saying, which is, how do we make this durable for the long term? I mean, by long term, 20, 30, 40 years. And I think that then begs questions about how do you find who are the representatives of uh, communities? I mean, a lot of the stuff I've done in recent years has been looking at smallholder agriculture. And there's an awful lot of focus within that world on cooperatives. Um, you look at things like fair trade, they pay their fair trade premium through cooperatives, which on the one hand seems to make sense. And to you actually, again, it's this whole thing about Everything's a bit more complicated than it first might seem. If you start to dig down, you find an awful lot of situations where cooperatives reflect the divisions in wider society. Um, so you may get it represents one group, not another group, one ethnic group, not another group. Um, typically, women and the poorest are excluded from participation largely because women are actually doing the bloody work rather than turning up to meetings, poor people because they can't afford to get along to the meetings. So you often end up with cooperatives that will be skewed towards the wealthier men. Then you get the potential of, of elite capture. Do you have, as, as you just said, that the, the guy who's in charge decides that the money that you've just paid him for a carbon offset programme would look jolly nice on his driveway as a, as a brand new Land Cruiser? Um, and I do remember once doing a programme where we were looking at what benefits a community wanted and and, and one community leader said something that we thought was a bit odd until we discovered that he'd asked for a water storage facility, read swimming pool, um, and and a road which went from the, the main the main trunk road to his front door for his compound. So how you actually drive benefit to genuinely to people, I think it has to be done on an individual basis. Um, I mean, you look at questions of I mean, looking at, you know, extractives, you know, artisanal mining, for example, um, you know, you've got to be able to get it to, to individuals. And, and I think the technology seems to be there. Um, you know, as you say, you've got um, e-wallets, uh, you know, you've got an increasing spread of smartphones in quite a lot of those parts of the world. It's, it's by no means perfect. But I think we've got to get better at working out what we mean by long term. Long term is not two or three years. Long term is 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and I think the only way in which you're going to get carbon projects genuinely, genuinely working, be that carbon offset or be that inset, 
if there's a genuine focus on on how that works. I mean, to come back to that example um, I was talking about, you know, two big multinationals, you know, the question was, well, you know, we as one was a very large, you know, Western food company. Well, you know, can we as this company, can we genuinely make a commitment that we are going to buy from from palm oil? Are we going to be able to buy from you for 30 years? You know, because that begs questions about, well, what does that constrain our procurement people? You know, there are an awful lot of important questions that that, that that need to be considered, both within companies, but also understanding those local communities. And as I said before, I don't think many people, particularly corporates, are very good at understanding those local dynamics. So given the importance of doing it, I'm at the moment not hopeful. And you've also talked about doing this work in, in conflict areas. So you talked about artisanal mining, you've done some work in DRC as well. Like what, what are some of the, the, the insights that you take there? Because these are some of the real, like the least stable poorest, um, most dangerous and dysfunctional environments on, on earth. Um, but, but there you still have entrepreneurs who, 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 who are trying to do ethical, ethical mining, ethical gold and things like that. Yes, you have. And it's, it's, and the question is, how do you give, um, grease to their elbow? I I mean, I'll talk particularly about a, a project I was working on in, in Northern Nigeria. Um, because, you know, you then have to see the, link between economic development avoidance avoidance of fragility one of the big drivers of of the strength of Boko Haram and this is I was working on this project of, you know six or seven years ago is they call them um they're, they're young kids um, who are from rural communities who get sent to madrasas in the big cities really all they learn is books from the from the noble Quran and then they go out and they've got no real skills so how do, then they the, the only real option they have is to go and you know go and work with Boko Haram fight for Boko Haram which makes the place incredibly unstable so what we were trying to do is say what could we do to work with you know in, investors what could we do to work with you know technical colleges in the area what could we do to work with master craftsmen to actually be able to bring these people in and skill them up so they could actually have a proper job okay on a very small scale but at least to have an interest and investment in the status quo rather than you know, so be less likely to go and fight with Boko Haram than to than to not, and it's and it it really is pretty difficult to do because the variables are massive, the situation is often extremely dodgy to be in, and you're dealing with a lot of unknowns. We touched on really a number of different areas, like how you facilitate democratic processes, how you deliver economic opportunities in fragile areas, how you navigate conflict areas. You, you have a huge wealth of experience that you're drawing on. I'd, I'd love maybe to put the sp- spotlight a little bit on, on you, actually, and, and ask, like, like, how are you? Where are you now? Like, what, what, is, what, is, what are you passionate about? Where you feel comfortable um, investing your energies in? And are you, what mood are you in reflecting on where, where the world is today as you know it? Well, I guess it's, 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 it's too easy to say it's easy to be pessimistic and that's not really very helpful. Um, I think the advantage of getting to a certain age is you begin to realise, for better or for worse, you've developed, I've developed a skill set which is unique and slightly odd. I'm, I noticed actually one of your previous interviewees described themselves as delightfully unemployable. Um, and I think I'd probably fall into that. Well, I don't know about delightfully, but certainly unemployable. But I think where I can 
what I've got to work on is where can I actually make a difference? There's no point in me doing something which is just fluffing around the edges. And it is being able to look to understand what's actually going on in a particular situation, not what might we like it to be, how do we actually make it work? Also to understand those layers of activity. I and mean, I've been doing a project this year, um, working with an EU-based organisation, looking at spillover effects from, from training programmes in export horticulture in Kenya, um, and sort of understanding how that works. As I say, I'm just about to do, some, do a project for the WTO, looking at public-private partnerships. And it's, so spillover is, is do, you, do you mean like the... A, sp- a spillover is when something happens that wasn't intended. Um, and in this case, it, there's, there's been a huge amount of effort um, by a, you know, a lot of it funded by the EU to skill up um, horticulture in Kenya to export mostly into the EU. And obviously at that stage, the UK was in the EU, but the UK as well. And that's, you know, looked at plant, you know, crop safety, phytosanitary standards, all that sort of stuff. And what we were looking at is, well, what else has happened? So, again, these things about changes in power dynamics, changes in the way which people regard themselves, changes in behaviours. So what we were seeing is that, for example, um, things were that those practices weren't just being applied to export horticulture. They were being applied to stuff that got sold domestically as well. You were starting to see behaviours like washing hands when people went in to prepare food to be exported they were using that same thing when they were preparing food at home so you're beginning to see how how these things have changed but i think it's it's being able to what i get passionate about is right how do we actually understand what the problem is here how do we dig through all the layers of what's happening what's going on but then critically it's always the so what question we're not, it's not about just coming up with a jolly clever analysis. It's about saying to, you know, be it a corporate executive, be it a World Bank official, be it a government minister in that country. So what do you do on Monday morning? So, you know, here's the problem. You can look at my analysis of the problem if you want to, but actually what you need to do is X, Y and Z. And that's always got to be the focal point. It's got to be about making sure you do the, the hard yards analytically but then rather than that just leading through to a jolly nice article in, in Foreign Affairs magazine or something, it's got to be the so what question of so what does someone do with it? And you mentioned also you're involved in a number of things that sound really, really exciting, like textiles in Nigeria or sustainability in, in, in wine. Um, Do you mind sharing a little bit about some of those more recent projects? Yeah, Nigerian textiles is a very interesting one. It's um, I've worked with a uh, an outfit called the LGK Foundation, which is which is backed by one of the big Nigerian families or several big Nigerian families. Um, historically, textiles was the the biggest non-state employer in Nigeria. Um, the sector fell apart when they discovered hydrocarbons in the in the seventies and eighties. Um, but the question is, how could you reestablish as reestablish it as being a real driver for employment? You know, obviously. As I've said just now, Nigeria suffers some quite significant instabilities. There's a real need for job creation. How could you develop a textile sector in Nigeria that would be economically viable, uh, commercially profitable, but also um, create jobs? Um, so we did a, a series of workshops that looked at different facets of that, which was a, a, a fascinating process. Sustainability in wine is really rather quite fun to be able to apply my sort of somewhat odd skill set to a to a, to a sort of personal topic. Um, it's interesting because wine effectively is another smallholder commodity like palm or olive you know oils and stuff a palm and and, and coffee and tea but obviously d- predominantly is based in in developed or rather than developing countries um but it's a sector that hasn't really 
face the same scrutiny on sustainability as as others. And so it's quite interesting actually applying some of the the lessons from other sectors into wine. Um, And I just developed um, a framework to try and assess there's something like 74 sustainability standards in wine, which is obviously a source of great confusion. Um, so what we're trying to do is to say, well, let's not just look at what's gone on in wine. Actually, let's look at the expertise that's, been, that's been developed in other analogous commodities, you know, palm, coffee, cocoa, tea, consumer goods, and say, well, what, what can the wine sector learn from, from what's gone on elsewhere? Uh, but the other one, which you didn't mention in the list, which is, um, again, comes back to this unintended consequences piece. I was doing some work last year with, um, well, last year and this year with um, Japan Tobacco International, which is amazing. I realise that tobacco is a controversial topic, but what they're doing is is incredibly good job of working with their farmers to develop additional incomes so that as they buy less tobacco, those farmers can gradually be moved from one commodity to another. But it does raise bigger questions that, for example, around tobacco, yes, it's all very well saying we need to reduce tobacco harm, point taken, no argument there, but what's the logic of saying, well, we reduce the harm for smokers of cigarettes in the global north, but then deprive smallholder farmers of a livelihood in the global south? We deprive countries of a significant chunk of their income. Now, that's not to say that shift doesn't need to be made, but unless you understand those dynamics and how you can make that shift, which is what we were doing with JTI, um, then you've, you've got a, a, real, a real challenge that is not being properly addressed. And I, I guess those communities don't get much of a voice, uh, or the 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 plight of economic sustainability of of uh, of smallholder farmers producing tobacco is, is not 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 uh, doesn't feature on the discussion around uh, health, health policies in developed countries. Yeah, yeah so, you know, they, they, it's the, the WTO absolutely. I mean, theoretically, part of their um, their their mission is to look at the on. The consequential harm to smallholder communities, but in practice, what they mostly look at is reduction of smoking globally, uh, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. But it's you have to then understand what the the logical consequences of that are, and then manage those. Yeah, and it's it's, it's actually a broader debate for the global south as well, on like for the, the for example Africa and the the whole energy story. So when we talk about COP twenty eight and a phase out of oil and gas, what does it mean for Africa? Um, that that uh, in, t- in terms of global CO two emissions is like two three four percent. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but but hasn't actually climbed that uh, that development journey. So h- how can we uh, enable Africa um, to responsibly monetize its resources and climb that development curve yeah, uh, in the context of a world that wants to decarbonize? That's, yes, that's exactly. Really I mean, and again, you've hit on another discussion that we could spend the next three or four hours happily discussing. But it's 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 absolutely right. It's how do you get these countries to be able to monetize their resources in a way which still meets how we want to see the world moving forwards. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation, Peter, and you're, you're right that we could speak for, for a few hours more on, on this. We, ha- we have a little tradition at the end of the podcast to ask a few uh, quick closing questions. But before I do that, I wanted to ask you if there's anything else that's on your heart that, or on your mind that you wanted to, uh, to share. The key thing I'd say, I suppose, is my experience is that no one acts irrationally. Often you'll get people, I mean, you, you get it, for example, with, well, Putin must be a madman or whatever. Let's use him as an example. My experience in quite a lot of strange places has been that almost no one acts irrationally. If you haven't understood why they're doing what they're doing, you haven't done your work yet. So that's, I think, a sort of a little take out. I like, I like that. I like that. I think that's it. Yeah. And it's, 
easy in when we do intervention planning or even just basic stakeholder management to uh, transfer some of our worldview onto others yeah. and then say, well, are they acting this way? Yeah, I, th I think it's a really... Really or we want people to do things for the reason we want to do them to do them. And there's a whole bunch of stuff I could talk about, you know, tax reform in Nigeria. Um, but yes, you've got to start with, it comes back to what we were saying earlier in the conversation, you have to start from where people are, not where you'd like them to be. Let's go with the closing question. So anything you've read recently that has changed you or changed uh, the way you've, you see the world? Well, I always have about three or four books on the go. And I can see behind you this huge yeah. library as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I like books. Um, I mean, I do, I do occasionally use um, an iPad if I'm traveling because it's a lot less heavy than taking a pile of books. And I usually have sort of three or four books on the go. So at the moment, I've got a, a biography of, of Mary, Queen of Scots. See, so again, The Link oh, to wow. France. Um, <laughs> and, but no, there's this there's one book I've just finished. It's, it's called The Escape Artist. Uh, no, I've just shown you the picture, which obviously uh, our listeners won't be able to see. Is it about Car Carlos Ghosn or no? <laughs> no, it's about a character. And it's one of those uh, one of those stories that demonstrates that reality is infinitely better than, than fiction. It's about this guy, um, Rudolf Furber, who, when he was 19, escaped from Auschwitz. Um, oh he God. was and he made it all the way back through Warsaw and Poland, got into Switzerland, got to the West and was able to say to the West what was going on in Auschwitz and just the sheer well there's two things about the book the first is it describes at the beginning the gradual encroachment of the Nazi tyranny on Jewish communities in Central and Eastern Europe um, but then also the sheer guts of an individual to be actually able to escape to actually go through all the things he went to and get out I mean it's if someone were to make a, a Hollywood movie out of it no people would assume it was made up but it's a true story. Um, the other thing I'm reading at the moment, which is, I suppose, because it speaks to, or I've just finished reading because it sort of speaks to a lot of what I've done, is The Year of the Locust, which is Terry Hayes' new novel. Um, oh. Terry Hayes, is a, he's a scriptwriter, um, film scriptwriter, but he did a, 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 an amazing book called I Am Pilgrim, which was out about 10 years ago. And it's a cracking sort of espionage, international relations. It's, it's like Jason Bourne on speed. <laughs> um, I think the original book's better than Year of the Locust, but it's still well worth the read. Um, it's one of those, it's one of those, it's 600 pages, but it's absolutely unputdownable. <laughs> thanks, thanks. All right. Second one, any uh, ritual or a habit or a hack that has improved your life? Well, we, we were discussing this before you pressed record. I'm a, inclined to be a worrier. Uh, and so... With the O. Yeah, warrior, yes. With an O, exactly. War, warrior, exactly. With an O. And sometimes when things have been going really badly wrong or there's been very difficult circumstances, you can spend so much time worrying about what's going on that you forget to enjoy life. So there's a, there's a, there's a quote, I think it's a biblical quote, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So whatever you've got that needs to be done, right, do everything you can on whatever those problems are. Think, have I done everything I can do? Okay, right. Then metaphorically, Put those things in a drawer, shut that drawer, and then right. I don't need. I, they're mentally out of sight. I haven't locked them away. I've not stuck them in a in a safe, and they're going to come back and haunt me down the line. But I can now go and I can go and walk the dog. I can go and enjoy a pint. I can go and enjoy the rest of my day. You know, it's the, the other way of looking at it. It's how do you eat an elephant? You know, one spoonful at a time. You know, sometimes challenges and problems seem so overwhelming 
that you don't know where to start. They just become scary and frightening and, and you almost want to give up. But if you say, right, let's just start with this bit. Let's just do that bit next and that bit next. Then eventually the problem's gone. And so that's a visualization technique. Yeah, it's a visualization How do you technique. operationalize this? Yeah. <laughs> that you do when? Like at the end of the day or like? When, I, when I've got a lot going on, what I'll do is I'll say, right, I'll, you know, be it, be it particular work projects or be it life challenges, it's right. Have I absolutely done everything that I can at the moment? Is there anything else I could be doing? Is there a call I could make? Is there an email I could send? Is there a person I should speak to? Okay, no. And then mentally, it's, you know, those kitchen cupboards that have soft closures. So you press them and they sort of close softly. Um, I sort of mentally think about opening the drawer, taking a sort of portfolio with the problem in it, putting it into the drawer and mentally closing the drawer and then again, tapping it and then off we go. Let's go on with the rest of my day. It's, yeah, it's a visualization technique and it works really well. I, I really like that. And I think we could talk for, for an hour about this, this topic as, as well. Because yeah, exactly. I, I, I find I, str I struggle with this a lot because the, what I notice is that anxiety or that worry is associated with things that are bubbling below the surface. That's right. Like fears, beliefs yeah. about yeah. inadequacies. And so even if I consciously or rationally say, yes, I've done all I could, now it's out of my control, it triggers a bubbling of worries and fears well, and, and, and beliefs. That's and right. those I find I cannot visualize away. I have to sit with them, meditate, or just re really spend time with that emotion uh, rather than actually try to forget about it. <laughs> no, I, the, the point is it's not forgetting about it because the point is you, th that thing is not, is not going to go away. What I find works best is to try and bring it into the front and, and actually look the fears in the face yeah. then say, well, what can I do? What needs to be done? And then when you're sure that you've done the thing, then almost that that strain falls away. Um, as you say, it's the it's that constant nagging. It's the metaphorical. Did I turn the gas off? Um, yeah, you know, yeah. when you're going on holiday, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. It's it's being able to be sure that you've done everything that you can, and then you don't have to have that sort of nagging worry below the surface because that's that ends up eating away at ability to enjoy life really, um, because it gets in the way when you should be having fun, when you should be with your kids. But you should be having fun with or your you friends. Should sleep. Yeah, or you should sleep. Actually, another another good hack actually for that one is always have a notepad by your bed. So when things come to your mind, you just note them down. And again, then they're out of the brain and they're on a piece of paper. So you then don't have to worry about them anymore. But yes, it is. I mean, a lot of us end up with that. You know, how do you get away from worry? Last one, a place that has special significance. Right. Now, I've been greedy here. You want to provide me 10? Or... I've got three. I've got three. One is Cherkassi is on the list. No, <laughs> Actually, absolutely not. <laughs> if I never go to Cherkassi again, with the greatest respect to Cherkassi, that's too soon. No, the first would be Oxford, um, because that's where I mentioned at the top of the conversation where life really shifted. I was an undergraduate at Oxford, and that's when I really realised how different uh, and how big the world could be and how exciting it could be. So that's one. The second would we be... We share that because uh, that's where I was born, actually. So it shifted from not existing to existing. Yeah. Well, that's a fairly significant shift, it must be said. <laughs> um, then, then the second place would be, would be uh, Montpazier in southwestern France. So again, the French link. <laughs> it's, um, it's one of the Bastille towns in, in, um, right down in the southwest. And it's, it, it, it's a beautiful place. Spent some lovely holidays there, but also historically, it's fascinating because it was the the frontier between, you know, the wars between the, the kings of England 
as the local dukes and the kings of France. So historically it's fascinating, the food and drink are fascinating and it's a lovely place to be. And then the third one I'd say would be, it had to be somewhere African. So I've gone for my, the first place I was in Africa, which was Zim. So the Eastern Highlands of Zim, um, where first realized the meaning of that line, you're under African sky, you know, all you can see wow. is stars. So yes, the Eastern Highlands of Zimbabwe. Wow, great. Thank you so much, Peter. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's Likewise, been really exciting it's to reconnect. Really amazing. to talk to you. Really, really good fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also consider becoming a supporter by visiting at the Thank you.